But today, as we begin to transition just a little bit, I've got to begin to show you some things where all of this is going to make sense. And we start with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all things have become new. This has been the verse that we base this entire series around. Understanding that when we are a new creation in Christ, if we are, then we are not what we were. We are something completely new. We have now been transformed into the image of Christ. The image of God. We are His image bearers on the earth. And with that comes a responsibility and an expectation. And we begin to grow into that image and begins to make sense. And we walk in the truth and the reality of who we are in Christ. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 6, it says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I don't know about you, but one is death, not so great. And the other's life and peace. Sounds pretty good. I would pick that. And when we think carnal mind versus spiritual mind, we always think morality. That somebody's acting carnally. But the truth of it is, is when we begin to act out things outside of the parameters of Scripture, how God has ordained things, we are now becoming carnal. Those are minor details that we may not think much about. But do you realize that, let me give you an example, doctrinally speaking. That if a person were to look at Scripture and they were going through life and they said, you know what, if you were baptized as a baby, you are now a born-again believer. Do you realize that's not how that works? What have we just done? We've taken a carnal step to make ourselves right with God. We are now carnally minded. There are a number of things that we could do. When we say that you are, oh man, you're a good person, you're going to go, if God is real and He is love and you are good, then you are good. Right? What have we just done? We created a God in our image, now we are thinking carnally. We're not thinking spiritually, we're thinking carnally. And because of that, our actions will be a reflection of the way that we think. That is true across the board, believer, non-believer, doesn't matter. What you believe to be true impacts the way that you act, the way that you talk, and every aspect of life. I know I've used this example, but if you've ever seen the movie The Village, anybody see that? It's great. It's so good. It's got a twist ending. If you haven't seen it, I don't want to ruin it for you, but I'm going to ruin it for you, okay? Because the premise is that they're like back in the 1500s or whatever the time frame was, I don't even remember, and they live in this area and there's this monster in the woods and you can't go out there. It will eat you. So they live in fear and they live in these old clothes and all of that. And that's the whole thing in the movie, this tension going on to deal with this monster and they start to realize this thing is fake. The people are making the whole thing up. It's some dude in a costume running around, all of this stuff. And at the end of the movie, the person jumps the fence, the wall that was there, and a car pulls up and says, what's going on? The entire time they were living in modern times. But yet because they believed so deeply that if they went into the woods, this thing would get them, it kept them paralyzed in fear, and they stayed home. Sound like anything going on around the world today? I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying. You do you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments at every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And what we've talked about is that we are in war. We are in a constant battle. That battle lies where? 
up here in our mind. And what are these things coming against? The knowledge of God. That's what they're coming. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, which is everything. From the beginning, that has been the battle that has taken place is still going on today. And to overcome this, you have to know what Scripture says. And that is where we began, is looking at these four fundamental questions. Who is God? Who am I in relationship to God? How do I worship God? And who is my enemy? And we strategically went through each one of these step by step, spent a couple of weeks on each one, talking about these. So we're not going to repeat all of that. But if you begin to understand that, it will revolutionize the way that you look at the world and the way you look at yourself. Because you are not a reflection of your past, you're a new creation. And when you get that, you get it. The things of this world, the things that the enemy brings against us can no longer keep us down and keep us in change. We would be the ones walking through the woods, jumping the fence, calling an Uber. That's what we'd be doing. Because I don't care what's out there. I can handle it. Because we begin to differentiate. So understanding this spiritual battle that's going on and this warfare is so crucial. Because as we've seen, this is what we think of. This picture here, the battle of good versus evil. Jesus and the devil arm wrestle. And I'm not putting it in. Is it up? There it is. There we go. Some red dude with horns, some European blue-eyed, brown-haired Jesus. That's exactly what it looked like. And we think, this is what's happening. It's a battle for our souls. And it's this back and forth that's going on. Here's the problem. That's not it. Because according to Scripture, the battle's been won. So where's the back and forth? And that's what we began to look at is where's the battlefield? It's in the mind. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And what I told you there is in the Greek, the word wiles is the word methodos. It's the method of which the enemy attacks. It talks about there being a road. And it's like he throws an object time and time and time again until he finally breaks through. And, and when we talk about this, I said there's basically three levels to this idea of how the enemy influences us in this world. The first one being the individual person. We as an individual are impacted by the enemy. He throws that rock, that ball, whatever you want to call it, he throws it time and time and time again until he can get you to believe the lies that he's trying to feed you. But from there, it goes beyond just you, and then it gets to a group. And that group could be a church, that group could be a small city, it could be anything, any influential group of any kind. But it takes a number of individuals to come together and be like, yeah, that's right. You guys think of Waco? You guys remember what happened at Waco? You got a bunch of individuals that bought into something, so much so that they all moved into a compound and somebody lit it on fire. didn't end well. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I know that's extreme, but that's, that's the deal. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that happens. They believe that. And then from a group, it goes into an area. And we're talking about these spiritual strongholds that are over, uh, let's just call it geography. It could be states. It could be cities. It could be countries. It doesn't matter. And we're going to get into each of that, but we're going to focus our attention onto the individual side for the next couple of weeks. Because we as individuals must begin to understand this enemy that we're against and how he attacks us individually. And unfortunately, we think we know, but we don't really get it. Because it's kind of like that verse, they come near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are from, from me. We say the right words, but we don't often know what we're saying. We just regurgitate what we have heard. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6 for a minute. I want to show you this. It says, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Well, first of all, put on the whole armor of God. That implies the entire thing, does it not? It also implies that you weren't born with it. And as we went through, and I've taught on the armor before and all the details of all of that, it, 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 there's, there's stipulation here that Paul is saying, you need this. Why? Because of the methods that the enemy is going to attack you with. It's crucial. You need it. What happens if you don't have it on? You likely fail. Now, here's the thing, and I want you to think about this. Do you realize that the methods the enemy takes to attack believers is not exclusive to believers? The methods he uses is to all people, believer, non-believer, doesn't matter. The difference is the response that we have. You guys get that? So in other words, he's attacking you as a believer, but he's also attacking non-believers, atheists, agnostics, uh, different faiths, whatever. He's attacking them in the same way. The difference is, is God has equipped us with the tools necessary to overcome that. Now, what does that mean to us? Whose responsibility is it? It's ours. So why do we whine so much, God, why did you let this happen? We do it all the time. But we've got to understand that. This is how the enemy attacks everybody. It starts up here. We often think physical attacks and all of that. We'll get to that in a little bit. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So now, stop. Who's this written to? Timothy. Right? Not written by Timothy. I know they can get confusing. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus. Ephesus at, at one point was the largest church in that world, around 50,000 people. Timothy is a young man, becomes the pastor over this church. And so he is telling him some stuff. Get ready to go. Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teacher, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So here's the thing. What does he say? Convince, rebuke, exhort. With long suffering, I wish that wasn't there, because people drive you crazy, and teaching. How is this overcome? It's through teaching. Because when you realize, after being taught something, it's true, you will begin to walk and act and think differently. Fair enough? It's like as a child, when you reach your hand onto the hot stove. Before you reach up there, you're like, oh, stove, maybe there's something I want up there. And the burner's on. And what do you learn after? It hurts. And what do you not do anymore? Touch the hot stove. You don't have to be smart for this. You could be homeschooled and figure that one out. I mean, there's a chance for all of us. But he says, the time is coming when they won't endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires. Now remember what we talked about, how do we worship God? God decides, not us. But according to their desires, what they want to be true. You act how you want. You live how you want. You eat what you want. You drink what you do. All this stuff. You do you because God is love. He made you this way. Because they won't endure sound doctrine. According to their own desires, they have itching ears and will heap up for themselves teachers. And that's exactly what happens, both believer and non-believer. They turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to fables. 
Is that not what we're seeing in society today? Is that not what we've seen in church today? Absolutely. We see it all around us. But you, Timothy, you be watchful in all things. You endure the inflictions. Do you realize that when he's telling these folks that have accepted non-truths that they're being idiots, that they may not like that? They may be like, no, you're an idiot. We're getting somebody new. We're going to vote him out. We're going to bring somebody new in that's going to tell us what we want to hear. Do you guys realize that there was a church in this town at one point where the pastor wasn't allowed to teach on hell because some of the members did not believe in hell? Can you imagine? No, that is literally hell right there, Nebraska football. That is right where it's at. We have been there at the cusp of it for a long time. We're believing, hopefully, with the new coordinators and what, they get saved and born again, and we're on our way to heaven. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Mason. But I work alone. Anyway. But he says, endure the afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. What does an evangelist do? Preach the truth at all times. And then, Timothy, you fulfill your ministry. Don't worry about what they say. You just do what you're called to do. You can't help that. So while it's absolutely true of the church that the enemy comes with the methods and he comes and he attacks, it's also true of humanity every single place. Now, I'm going to show you some extreme cases of this today. And this is where the weird part is going to get in because I'm going to show you examples of things that I have dealt with I'm going to show you examples of things that have happened in history because we do not realize how much the world, and when I say the world, who's the father of the world? It's the enemy, has crept into the church today. But let's start with some of this. First, I want to introduce you to this guy named Eliphas Levi. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you may not. He was born in 1810. He died in 1875. He was a 33rd degree Freemason. He was a famous British occultist. And I want to show you this picture because this is a picture that was drawn during this time. He is doing a, I don't know what you call these, but he's invoking this. This is a demon. Okay? You can see the Baphomet up on the wall there. He's standing in the, in the circle. And this was drawn during the time period. And these were things that he did. He did it constantly. We're all thinking, well, yeah, that's wacko. That's crazy. Do you realize that he didn't start here? Like, think about this. Like, first day on the demon job, not sacrificing chickens. Okay? It's probably just a few bad ideas. And so here he is in this, we'll go ahead and go back for just a minute. I'll show you the color one here in a second. But here he is, and you begin to see this portal that opens, is what he's claiming that he saw. And here walks through this demon. And this demon, which his proper name was Mephistopheles, if, okay, I didn't put it up there. I can't pronounce it. You just deal with that. But he had a common name that was given to him that they all referred to him as, and what they would do is they would invoke this demon, and he would come, and he would give them wisdom and tell them what they needed to do next. Do you know what the name of that demon was? Yoda. Uh-oh. How you doing, Brett? You going to be okay? Brett's a big Star Wars fan. If you go to the colored version, this is one that's been redone, so you can kind of see it in a little bit more detail. I mean, there's all occult symbolism and stuff like that. But this is what we think of. When we think of the carnal mind, when we think of the bad things that happens in demonology and all, we think of this stuff. But it's deeper than this. Let me show you this next guy. This is a guy you may have heard of. His name is Aleister Crowley. Okay? He was weird in all sorts of stuff. He was obviously born in 1875. He died in 1947, which wasn't really all that long ago. Extremely influential. Do you realize that there were songs written about this man? Some of you that were rockers back in the 80s, there were songs written about this man. Some of you that weren't born in the 80s have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, but anyway, he wrote a book called The Book of the Law. And in this book, he claimed that 
as he was in this trance-like state, he was an occultist, that it was dictated to him by an entity named Iwas, A-I-W-A-S-S, and Crowley considered this to be his personal guardian angel. And he wrote in there, it's called the Law of Thelema, and this is what it says. It lays down a simple code of conduct. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The love, love is the law, and love under will. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt. Now, there are still people that follow his work today. It's very mainstream, more than you realize. Uh, Hollywood, music industry, very into this kind of stuff. You can look this stuff up. If you want to go reference some of this stuff, you can go to a website called goodfightministries.org. They have a lot of information out there on this. You can check that out. Guy, a guy with the last name of Schimmel did a lot of work on that. No relation, just so you know. But the Thelemites would speak of the great work, which is a reference to this book, and they would attain knowledge conversing with one's guardian angel. They would talk to these angels back and forth. And their goal was to accomplish one's true will. And the true will in Thelema is an individual unique person, or purpose that was dictated by their nature. And so they would discover their nature and their true desires in life and see it through the end as they would find satisfaction to find out who they are. So that they don't wander aimlessly. But it's like finding your purpose. And finding your destiny. And what you are on this earth to do. Does that sound like anything that maybe you have seen or heard in churches recently? In the last decade? Because that is where the message has gone. It's no longer about God. These are usually good intentioned people. But what it turns into, you find your purpose. Find your destiny. What is your calling? I can answer that question really simply. To know God and to make Him known. Yeah, but we're not talking about that. What, what is going to fulfill me and find satisfaction in my life, whether it be my job or the things that I accomplish? I'm looking for the purpose that I have on this earth. And then I always go back and I'm like, oh, I can help you with that. It's to know God and to make Him known. That's too simple of an answer and we don't like that. But this mindset has crept into the church. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that every church that is preaching this type of stuff is an occultist church that are preaching demonic things. These are well-intentioned people, don't misunderstand, who probably love the Lord and are likely leading people to Christ. I don't want to like, put that out there like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. The thing is, is that we have to have, go back to what the scriptures have said, our purposes of our gatherings of what we are here to do and what we as individuals have a responsibility to do. So, Crowley has been very influential. He wrote a book called Magic, spelled with a K, C-K at the end. Again, this stuff is well-referenced, well-documented. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. But I want to show you this, because this is interesting. He wrote a, 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 drew a picture of one of the entities that came through to him. His name was Lamb. Now, what does that look like to you? Little gray alien, doesn't it? Now, he drew this way, way, way back when. I don't remember what year he drew it. But he had a quote about this. He said, today, we call them angels and demons, but tomorrow, we will call them something else. What was he meaning? I don't know. I can tell you this from people that I know, because I know a bunch of weird people, is that they have studied the idea of alien abduction and stuff like that. And they said that in every case where an individual invoked the name of Jesus, the experience stopped immediately. Could be a coincidence. I don't know. I mean, there's so much to this stuff. 
that it's deeper than we realize when we talk about the enemy. But again, did Crowley start with writing the book, doing the sacrifice? They would do things like sex magic, and there's all this stuff. It's gross. It's disgusting. Is that where it started? No. It started with these little seeds of doubt, these little ideas popping into their mind. And then it grew, and it grew, and it grew. Now, I'm going to show you a quick video here, and I think you'll pick up on what we're putting down. Go ahead. I'm not trying to say that, you know, anything about the music necessarily. I'm showing you this because we look at extremes. You've got young boys have killed this young girl. Do you think that just happened overnight? Not a chance. Now, he's claiming to be a Christian. I don't know whether he is or isn't, okay? I, have no, I don't know anything about this man, okay? Um, just because you claim that or you say, I pray before, who cares, right? That's not my point. My point being is all of these things have, were gone in intervals. They happened because, again, it's slowly. These are individuals that made decisions, but it didn't start with the extremes. The extremes is where it got to, but it didn't start there. And this happens all the time when we talk about good and bad things. Do you guys realize, some of you remember this, but there was a time that this country was absolutely obsessed with Beanie Babies. And I stood in line to get them. I was obsessed with them because, you know, I bought one and it's like, oh, this thing's worth twice what I paid for it. I like that. I wasn't an expert. But, but I mean, we, again, we, 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 we talk about this stuff. And we're like, what is happening is a bunch of extremes that started extremely small. You don't wake up one day and be like, this is really, really bad. You see, I want to tell you guys some stories and stuff that and some of it I've shared before. And some of it uh, maybe I haven't. Some of you have heard it, maybe you haven't. But I'm going to tell you anyway. And so these are things that have either happened to me or people that I know. And in this case, it's people that I know. And there's a guy named Tony Merkel. Now, Tony Merkel is a born-again Christian. And um, he is one. He's got a podcast that he does. And he interviewed a guy named Zachary King. Now, Zachary King at one point claimed to be an ex-high wizard in the Satanic Church. He hailed from Kansas. Um, he got into it at a very, very young age. And they were playing this game as a kid where um, they would go into the bathroom they turn off all the lights. And they would say that, I can't remember what it was, uh, Bloody Mary, that's it. I was going to say Hail Mary, I knew that wasn't right. And he said they did it, and at first nothing happened, and again, nothing happened. And then one day, he saw the face. He saw something. And he said it began to happen more frequently, and it got him into this. And he, he, he came up in this satanic church. He finds this group, this coven of witches, and he gets in there, and he liked all the things that they were offering at 13 years old. The booze, the women, all that stuff. They liked that. He liked the power. He liked that he could be built up. And I'm going to reference him several times uh, over the next couple of weeks because I'm going to show you some of the things that he claims that they did to infiltrate churches, which is interesting to me. But going back to Tony, Tony is a truck driver by trade. Drives truck. He's up in Pennsylvania. Born-again Christian. And what is a born-again Christian's responsibility on this earth? Know God, make him known. And that's what he was doing. He was talking to this guy that he worked with, and somehow or another, God came up in the, the equation. He begins to talk to him and share with him. And the guy says, I'm going to call him Jim because I don't remember his name. He says, Tony, I'm, man, I'm loving what you're saying. Would you mind coming over to my house at this time, you know, and talk to me more about this? And Tony said, absolutely. He was excited about it because he's got an opportunity to share the gospel. And so he showed up to the guy's house, knocks on the door. Guy answers the door. He's like, oh. You actually showed up. Normally they don't. Now, that might have been a red flag there. And looking back, it certainly was, but he didn't 
pick up on it. He's like, okay, whatever. And he goes in there and he sits down and the guy's kind of showing around. And he says, Tony, uh, do you want to go to the basement? I want to show you what's down there. And he's like, well, we can get there eventually, but not right now. And so Tony begins sharing the gospel. And the guy's getting excited, like overly excited, way more excited than would be normal. He's telling them the truth of the gospel, how Christ died for your sins, forgiveness, Savior, all of those different things. And the guy's like, yeah, I really, really like this. And he shows him, he said, he had this satanic Bible over there. And he said, you know, I've gotten into some of this stuff and it just didn't make sense to me. Um, but he's like, I want you to take this, Tony. So he prays the sinner's prayer, okay? He said, I want you to take this. And Tony's like, okay, I'll take it home. I'm just going to burn it. And he freaks out and just screams, no, really loud. And Tony's just taken aback. He's like, you can do what you want with it, but just don't burn it. I just don't like people destroying books. And so he goes and he embraces Tony. He said he hugs him. He puts his head on his shoulder and he just exhales really deeply. And Tony's like, well, that's weird. You know, maybe the guy's just weird. And so they stop. This happens two or three more times. He invited into the basement. Tony didn't go. Finally, he leaves. Okay. Tony telling this story and, and telling Zachary King about this. And Zach's like, I can tell you exactly what he was doing. Because it turns out this guy was a, a Satanist. And he believed, the Satanists believed, that when they embrace somebody fully and they breathe on them like that, they are attaching demons to them. They're breathing demons onto them. This is what he's telling them. So finally, that, during the interview is when Tony realized that. He just thought the guy was weird. Two weeks later, they're back at the shop and they're talking. And Jim is sitting there, there and they're talking. And he says, oh, and some guy walks in the room. And, and Jim's like, oh, there's Jerry. He's one of those born-agains. Tony looked at him, he just thought it was kind of odd, and he's like, I'm one of those born-agains. And he just looked at him, he's like, you are? And he said, I was at your house for several hours. You were? Didn't remember any of it. Didn't remember any of it happened. Still doesn't know what would have happened if he went in the basement. But Tony talked about going on this journey now, after that, that he began to go into this, uh, almost a depression. He said, it got hard to read his Bible. And it got hard to do, like his prayer life just stopped. You know, things were happening. Just, he just got depressed. He couldn't figure out what it was. And realized that something had transpired that day that he did not take care of. He had authority to take care. He just didn't recognize what was happening in the moment. You know, we talk about extremes and we talk about weird things. This is an example of that. But there's a lot of things out there that in our eyes we would consider way less sinister. Like that's all kind of extreme. You know, sacrifices and all of this stuff, weird stuff. Don't get freaked out by it because it just is what it is. Like, there are strange things that happen out there. You hear about it. We often brush it off. I could tell you story after story from people that I know that were involved in that lifestyle at one point that would tell you. And, and just FYI, just because somebody claims to be a Christian doesn't mean they are. And just because they say that, you know, oh, well, as a Satanist, we do this, this, and this, doesn't mean that that's exactly how it went down. Okay? Just understand that. But these less sinister ideas in our eyes are more of what I was talking about before. That, oh, well, you were baptized as a child, you're now in the kingdom of God. But that's not how, what Scripture says. That's not how it works. Or, or in this case, and I just dealt with this recently, well, God is a woman. Do you know why she made that claim? Because she's created in the image of God. Thus, God must be a woman. Now, what's interesting to me, again, we, we just begin to break this stuff down, is what is she using to tell her that she's created in the image of God? 
Scripture. How else would you know that, right? It wasn't painted in the clouds one day. It comes from Scripture. But yet she chooses to ignore the entirety of Scripture that talks about God being a man. Right? Isn't that a bit of a double standard? It is, but it's no problem. But where did this idea come from? It got planted in her mind. The ideas of that, you can pray to Mary or pray to the saints and do stuff like that, didn't start overnight. In fact, that wasn't even adopted until centuries after the Roman Catholic Church began to come to power. But it took place little step at a time. Let me tell you another story. And I, it was, uh, I was with Evan, actually, uh, Leslie's son. He had called me up. He had a friend of his that he'd been ministering to. And the guy was very smart and was asking him questions he just couldn't answer. I said, hey, let's go grab a bite to you. We'll, I'll talk to him. You know? Now, this kid was very smart. There's no question about it. Very sharp. He'd gone to the Catholic school up there, but he was an atheist. He did not believe in God in any way because of a series of things that took place until about one week before I met with him. He'd had this transformation that had taken place. And in this transformation, here's what happened. He'd gotten his girlfriend pregnant. Girlfriend had a miscarriage. Okay? He was pretty upset about it. And I don't remember if it was a dream or a vision or something happened, but he had seen where Mary was holding his baby, either in this dream or in this vision. I don't remember what it was now. It's been a few years. And because of that experience, he now believed in God. Isn't that interesting? So you had somebody who did not believe, has an experience and now believes in God, right, wrong, or indifferent in the vision. And he and I began to talk, and we were kind of going back and forth. He's very philosophical. Did you ever get a chance to talk? Yeah, you know exactly why not. He's a sharp dude, isn't he? Yeah, he's, not, he's no dummy. Fortunately, in this case, and it wasn't easy, he painted himself in a corner, and I've just done this enough that I, I caught him. He finally said, okay, well, you got me on that one. And so after several back and forth sessions, even after that day, he said, you know what, I believe everything that you've said. I see it, it makes sense to me, but I think I'm going to keep Mary because of that experience. Now again, how did he come to that, that belief? It was a series of ideas. Because the battlefield is always in the mind. That's what we've got to understand. This is where it starts for us individually. For every person, believer or non-believer, the battlefield is in the mind. The difference is... We have what we need to deal with those thoughts, but we don't do it. Now, let me give you another example. This is a, a book here I brought with me today. It's called, What the Hell? It says, How Do We Get It So Wrong? Eternity, Grace, and the Message of Love. It was written by a guy named Jackson Barry. Anybody ever hear of him? Probably not, because he self-published this. I went to Bible school with him. Let me read the back. What if everything you've been taught about hell was wrong? Many Christians think that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and those who don't believe in him will spend eternity in a literal and burning hell. Is this what the Bible teaches? Will the majority of mankind spend eternity in torment because they rejected God in this life? What the hell will show you what the scriptures clearly teach about this subject and where the idea of hell came from. It's not about winning or losing or even changing the Christian faith. It's about honest pursuit of truth. Now that last one is a lie. But here's the thing. As I said... I went to Bible school with this guy. He was in ministry for seven years. We played softball together. Okay? I was better than he was. He didn't like that, but that's all right. At one point, I was, I'll say, sort of athletic. I don't even know how to describe that. 
But we were friends. We were really good friends. It had been for a long time. And uh, we talked, and I remember I was watching on Facebook. You know, we stayed in touch because he was up in Washington or something at this point. We'd stayed in touch, um, but I watched him progress. Some of the stuff he was posting was just kind of weird, and I just ignored it. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever figured this out, but back and forth on, on social media, not real fruitful, right? And then he came out with this book. And so I didn't know what it was about, but a friend of mine wrote a book, and so I ordered the book because I wanted to support the guy. And um, he sends me a message. He's like, oh, hey, man, I really appreciate you doing it. And he's, and he's like, you know, there might be some stuff in there that you disagree with. And at the time, I was like, well, I didn't really buy it to disagree or agree with you. I bought it to support you. You know, you're a friend of mine. And I began to read this book, and I'm like, holy cow, what happened? Because this guy grew up in a Bible-believing church. He grew up with the tenets of the faith and stuff that hadn't changed through all millennia. And yet something began to transform in his life. There was something that influenced him that made him begin to question the authority of Scripture to the point that he's completely off the rails now and begin to question the truth and the foundational faith that we have. And what it was, he was introduced to a guy named Rod Bell. And what Rod began to say made sense, that there is no eternal burning hell and that God is not coming down for retribution and going to destroy mankind, but He's going to restore us. And there are a lot of strings attached, and I don't want to go into all of that stuff. But it was one day he had this idea. It's like, hmm, is this really what, I, what it is? And he went and began to find resources that supported the ideas that he had. Thus, he was introduced to Rod Bellin and many of these other guys that are out there. And it was this slow progression that took place. But what did it start with? It started with a thought. What should he have done? Let's take this thought captive. Let's study Scripture to see if these things are true. Because the claim was they studied Scripture, but that wasn't really what took place. You see, it's always with these ideas in mind. Let me tell you one more story, okay? When I moved to Oklahoma to go to Bible school, again, I, I grew up the majority of my life in church, I needed a haircut. Now, I'd had the same barber my entire life. You walk in, you sit down, you pay your $7, you get your haircut, and you leave. And all the haircuts pretty much looked the same. You just got what you got. You didn't have a lot of say in it. And in this case, I'm now living in a major city. I'd never been in one before. And I didn't even know where to get a haircut, but I saw a JCPenney, so I strolled over there. And I walk in, and they've got a salon. I've never been in a salon. It's not the same as your hometown barber, FYI. And I said, I, I'm like, forgive my ignorance, I need a haircut. How do I go about doing that? Do you have time? Do you set an appointment? She's like, well, as a matter of fact, Nathan here could get you right now. He doesn't have anybody coming in for a little while. And Nathan swings around. He's like, oh, yes, I can get you. And I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus. What am I going to do with this? I don't know. I, I begin, small town life, same barber. So we, well, I walked and he sashayed back to the chair. And we sit down and talk and he's telling me these stories. And he's as flamboyant as you can imagine, but he's such a nice guy. And we're just chit-chatting. And he's telling me a little bit about his life and some of the things he did, asking where I was from. And I told him I just moved to Tulsa and all this other stuff. And we're just, we're just chit-chatting. And uh, so he's like, well, I've been having a little trouble at work here since I moved here, because he had just moved into the area, too, and started this job. Turns out he was a master hairstylist. He'd done the Oprah show. He'd done all of this stuff. Like, he was a big deal, apparently. And, uh, and I, I said, well, what's going on? Everybody seems so nice. He's like, well, they're nice, but everybody here thinks I'm, and he looks around, he gets real quiet. He's like, gay. 
And I'm like, no way. You're kidding me. Well, what had happened is he had been. But he gave his life to Christ. And he'd come out. He had a complete transformation in his life. Complete. He was completely different. And um, this man, I mean, he was telling me stories. He had seen miraculous things. Like, literally, somebody had a tumor on their, on their neckline. Prayed for him. The thing just fell off. I mean, incredible stories. And we just hit it off. Really hit it off. Like, we became friends. And we'd start hanging out. And he'd come over and hang out with Amy and I. I got free haircuts. It was spectacular, right? Master hairstylist cutting this mane here, right? He was making me look very GQ, if that's even possible. And I may have told you this, but he begged to dye my hair forever. He'd always dye Amy's and do all this stuff. And so after begging, I finally said, all right, listen, just do it, whatever. I'm sick of you asking me. And so it went platinum blonde, if you can imagine. And after three days of constantly being hit on by guys, I said, you got to change it back. I can't deal with this. This is not, not where I'm going. I mean, it was not good. And so he did whatever to correct it as best he could because I couldn't handle it. That's just the reality of it. And things were going good. We were really tight, really good friends. Um, he would come to church. He would invite me. He'd get invited to go visit this church on an off night. He says, will you go with me? I don't want to go by myself. So I went with him. There was one that we went to that was a small church that had just started, and a friend of his had invited him to go there. It was in the back of a Ron's Hamburgers, which was just a hamburger joint down there in Tulsa, which was complete torture because it smelled like hamburgers the entire time. And it was a four-and-a-half-hour-long church service, y'all. Four and a half, yeah, you're right, you're welcome, okay? I just went, it just never stopped. These are the days prior to texting, so I can't even text my wife, like, I don't know when I'm coming home. I may never come home. This may be where I die. I don't know, but if I'm not going to make it, please get me a hamburger. That's all I'm asking. It smelled marvelous in there. And, uh, but, I mean, the whole experience was weird because they had this giant African pastor there. I've never seen a man sweat so profusely in all my life. And he had such a thick accent, I couldn't understand anything he said. And the worst part was, he points me out in the service. He's like, brother, I have a word for you. Will you stand up? And I said, okay. And he starts prophesying over me. The problem was, I couldn't understand anything the man said. I hope it was good. I was sitting there the whole time. I'm like, am I getting free lunch? Is that what he's saying? Maybe that would be all right. But, I mean, this is going on. And so I would go with him. And and, and in a way, I was, I mean, I'm 19 years old, so I don't really know any better. But I'm discipling this man, and I didn't even know it. We were just kind of hanging out and and doing life. And he'd ask Bible questions, and we'd go to church together. And we'd do all of this stuff. And he was doing really well. And then one day... He met a pastor down there. And that pastor, again, the flamboyant side of him never really went away. He loved sequin shirts. I couldn't get him to stop. And the pastor said, you know, God made you that way. He said, what do you mean? He's like, you need to be true to yourself. That's exactly how God made you. And these thoughts started coming into his mind again. And the lifestyle and all of this stuff. And he just train wrecked. And he would go out, and if you know anything about that lifestyle, it's very destructive, and there's a lot of drugs and alcohol and all this stuff, very destructive. And he was going back into this stuff, and then what would happen, he would come out of it after the weekend and feel guilty, and he would call me, and he would come over, and we would talk, and I'm, you know, again, I'm 19 years old. I'm just, I'm just trying as best I can. I don't have all the answers. And it finally got to the point where I realized that he's just calling me, and then I make him feel better, and I pray with him and all this stuff, and then he would just go and do it again. Then I finally said, listen, man, I love you, and I'm always here but this has got to stop. Like, I can't do this anymore. And I had to cut him off. And praise the Lord, you know, a couple years later, he came out of it, 
recognized it, got right with God, went to the same Bible school that I did. I mean, it was, it was a good thing. It ended well. That was the hardest conversation I ever had to have in my life because I truly cared about this man. And, um, but what happened is somebody put an idea in his head. It just train wrecked him. Completely train wrecked him. And you see, this is what I'm saying, is that these thoughts matter. Because they happen to believers and non-believers. This is another book that I brought with I want to show you guys. Seducing Spirits and the Doctrines of Demons. As you can tell, it's not a new book. Graphics have gotten a little better. But it's by a guy named Rick Renner. And I want to read you this. Um, on the back here it says, With its glamour, celebrity sponsors, and supernatural displays, the New Age movement is alluring millions into its web of deception. There Satan conspires to mesmerize the world with supernatural phenomena unrelated to God. This tragedy is far worse than it seems, for the church is not unaffected by these seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And even more serious satanic seduction is taking place within the church. Some, because of a God-given hunger for the supernatural, are intruding into realms of the spirit without God's assistance. These teachings may sound spiritual, but they contain a hook that could throw the, new, uh, the church into error as damaging as that of the New Age movement itself. Renner writes, it's time to stand up and shout the truth about these dangers. A great delusion is taking place. So he wrote this book, and in it is a foreword by a guy named Bob Yandian. Some of you guys may know him, some of you may not. He's a pastor of a very large church down in Tulsa. Um, just, he's a beacon of light in the faith. He just, he's an incredible man. And this is the foreword. Rick Renner preached this series at Grace Fellowship, which is the name of his church. And I'm pleased to see it being published in a book. It was one of the most timely messages I have heard, and it has impacted many of my sermons since. Seducing Spirits and Doctrines of Demons is an accurate insight from Paul's letter to Timothy on the day that we are living in. Rick paints a clear picture of Satan at work in the world today in the New Age movement, imitating the role of the church. He also tells of Satan's attack in the church itself to lure believers away from the foundation of the Word of God and chase only after miracles and the supernatural. Rick brings a balanced truth to those who long to hear the word of truth rightfully divided. It is a pleasure to recommend Rick Renner as an able minister and my friend. This book was written in 1988. The sermon series took place about three years before. And if you read this, and I would encourage you to get an opportunity, you'd have thought he wrote it just last week. It's incredible what you're seeing. Because again, the enemy moves, but we have the tools. We have the ability. We have what we need. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, and they're going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. I mean, this idea... Hails way back. But in latter times, we're there in the latter times. By default, we're in the latter times. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on in them. So these are two verses that are dealing with one in group of believers, but the other one is telling that the minds the God of this age has blinded, 
and they do not believe. Where is that battle? It's in the mind. You do not cash in your brain the moment you become a born-again believer. This battle takes place all the time. And we see this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. And the Lord God said to the woman, Has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the garden, but the fruit of which is in the midst of the garden, which God has said you should not eat, you should not touch, or you'll die. And the serpent said, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. He's lied to her, convinced her. That's not what God said. You're not going to die. I mean, that's not what he means. I know it's what he said, but it's not what he means. Right? Same stuff we do. If he gets you thinking wrong, you will begin to act wrong. If you have a minor view of Scripture, then the authority that comes from that will be a minor view as well. No matter what it is. We see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, I'm going to read these quickly. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and nights afterward, he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. And he answered, said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in, the, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. That comes from Psalm 91 or 92, I don't remember. And Jesus said to him, it is written again, you should not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and the glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. What did the devil try to do? Did he try to attack him with sickness? Did he try to kill him? No, he tried to convince him. He even quoted scripture. Isn't that interesting? What did he try to do with Eve? Did he go in there and like wrap himself around it? And I don't think he was a snake. I've been there, but you know what I mean. Here, eat this apple. Let me jam it down your throat. That would happen. He convinced her. The methodology of how Satan attacks is the same whether you are a believer or you are not a believer. It doesn't matter. The methodology is the, the exact same. The difference is, is we have the ability and the responsibility to do something about it individually. We can talk about groups, and we will. And we're going to talk about areas, and we will. But the thing is, is that here it starts with us. Every group that has been infiltrated with bad ideas started with an individual who was infiltrated with a bad idea. Individually, we succumb to this. Hebrews 5, verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Do you notice what it doesn't say? You're not full age by age. The only way you are full age is those by reason of use, in other words, how you have acted upon the truth that you hold, have had your senses exercised to do what? To discern what's good and bad. And where do you do that at? It's in your mind. It's always there. I mean, in Luke 22, verse 1, it says, The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how, to, how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And Satan entered Judas... Surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Now that's interesting. Because you think he just woke up one day and the devil just walked into him and said, Hey, we're going to take care of this. You're going to get paid, son. No, this, this was going on for a long time. These bad ideas for a long time. And what's crazy is that he's in the presence of Jesus. He saw the miracles. 
He heard the sermon. He saw the dead raise the blind see. I mean, he saw all of that and yet was succumbing to these thoughts. We see where it ended. We didn't see necessarily where it started. It didn't start there. He didn't wake up one day and said, I want to be a demon puppet. It's not what happened. Same thing in Acts chapter 5, verse 1. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Keep back part of the price of the land for yourself while it remained. Was it not yours? And after it was sold, was it not yours? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. I mean, do we get this? This is what's going on. And worship team will come on up. I mean, this is what we're dealing with. You see, it didn't start there. It wasn't like he showed up and he just said, Oh, hey, you know, I'm going to do this. There's these little thoughts. At any point in time, that was his money. He didn't have to do anything but he believed the lie. Judas believed the lie. We individually have believed the lies. And we don't recognize it. As I said, the methods of which the enemy attacks mankind does not change whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. It is the exact same way. The difference being is you as a born-again, spirit-filled believer have not only the ability, but the responsibility to deal with it. But we act like we aren't, that we can't. I don't know how to do it. The same way we deal with it is it's the same every time. You take that thought captive, you bring it into obedience to Christ. This is where we've missed it. We all hear about these churches that are screwed up or these uprisings that take place. It always starts with individuals. I'm going to show you guys over the next couple of weeks how all of this plays a part into this. But it starts right here. It starts with us. So let's stand up. And let's just spend a minute worshiping God before we go today. Go ahead. At the cross I bow my knee Where your blood was shed for me There's no greater love than this You have overcome the grave Your glory fills the highest place what can separate me now at the cross lord at the cross i bow my knee where your blood was shed for me there's no greater love than this you have overcome the grave glory fills the highest place what can separate me now sing it one more time at the cross i bow my knee where your blood was shed for me there's no greater love than this you have overcome the grave glory fills the highest place what can separate me now at the cross at the cross i surrender my life i'm in all of you i'm in all of you where your love ran red and my sin washed white 
accept them as truth that we owe all to him that it will truly impact the way that you act the way that you talk the way that you carry yourself because you will realize that you do owe him all and therefore the standards that he has laid out of how we are to live our lives that you will step up your game but when you take that for granted and you forget about the price that was paid for your salvation then you will just exist on this earth and go through the motions and this is what God is trying to do, is get a hold of individuals' hearts and say, you are mine. Father, we just worship you. And we thank you that you have done all of this for us. And Lord, I thank you that you are quickening our hearts to become more like you. And that the areas that we need to repent of, that we will be bold enough to do it. That we will step up and recognize our shortcomings and quit making excuses for them. Quit justifying our bad behaviors, Lord, but that we will walk in the image of who you created us to be. To be your representatives on this earth. Recognizing that every day we have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. And I thank you that we'll be bold enough to step through it. And that we recognize that when people look at us, that they see an example of you. And if we are not being an example for you, Lord, I just ask that you forgive us. Yes. That our hearts will be changed to yours. That our hearts will break for those who are lost. Father, we thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. And Lord, we thank you for what we're about to do. As we go in there to pack these boxes, I thank you, Lord, that you will use these gifts as a doorway to open the truth of the gospel to these young people around the world. 
And Lord, that your hand is upon that organization, upon us as we go to do this, Lord, but that you are glorified in it. It's not about us, and it's not about them, it's all about you. And so, Lord, as we go, I just thank you that you're moving here and touching lives and changing hearts. Lord, I think as we go in there, the food that we're about to partake, it nourishes us, gives us the strength to do your work, that you have blessed us in everything that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. We'll head into the other room.